Well, welcome to lesson number nine on tithes and offerings. This is our final lesson, and we're calling it Ministry Money Ethics. And I've written this lesson in particular for the ministers that we may have influence over or get to influence or teach or administer the word to. As I wrote and prepared all of these lessons, there were certain things that kept sticking out to me as I looked at scripture after scripture after scripture, and a lot of it just kept speaking to me as a minister and as a leader about ethics. And as you guys know, we do our very best, as best we know, to have the utmost ethics and integrity in every area, but especially in the arena of money. Money can become a tremendous stumbling block, and in fact, because of uh, the advent of Christian television and the televangelist, unfortunately, most people, when they mock Christianity, they say, all the preacher wants is your money. And some of that has been a stereotype that was well-grounded, and unfortunately so. So we're trying to redeem it. The Bible has already given us all these principles about how to do things above board. So I wanted to write this lesson to help teach money ethics or ethics in finances in the local church. Let's look at our lesson here. The gospel minister must have the highest standard of morality and ethics around. That preacher's got to be the cleanest, holiest, most transparent, most blameless person you know. Every preacher, according to the gospels, excuse me, the epistles, they've got to be able to say like Paul, it's a small thing if you judge me. Paul said, I don't care if you judge me. Uh, He said, what is it to me if you judge me? When you're clean, you don't mind to be judged. When you want to do better, you don't mind to be judged. When you're dirty, you hate scrutiny. When you are not good, you hate scrutiny. Too often the pulpit is found to be corrupt in the matters of money. And that is unfortunate. And we're trying to redeem that. Uh, It's probably one of the reasons I don't want to be on Christian television or be a televangelist, as they would call me. I don't like Christian television, yet the Lord has us on television. But it's because of that reputation that the televangelist has really pioneered and destroyed in the last 30, 35 years of money, 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 big hair, big makeup, big jewelry, big cars, big houses, all that stuff that just brings despite to the name of Jesus Christ. God's promise to be our supply. And if that's the case, unethical money practices are totally unacceptable. So let's look at some verses here. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2 in the New American Standard. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, which is pleasing to the eye, but deceptive. Craftiness means to be pleasing to the eye, but deceptive. Nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That verse always speaks to me as a preacher and as a minister, that I must make sure I do everything I can to commend myself and my church and this ministry to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, there's some people you're never going to be able to please their conscience because you're going to preach the truth and they just don't want truth. But everything else, I have to do my best, according to this verse, to commend myself and my church and this ministry to everybody's conscience around here. You can't please everybody, but you have to do everything as clean and as holy as possible. God's ministers must renounce the hidden practices of dishonesty, deception, and craftiness. And I can't think of any arena that that doesn't flare up more than money. The minister's total lifestyle, both private and ministerial, must be open, transparent, and susceptible to scrutiny. 
Now, obviously, there's a, there's a section of, of private life that remains private. I keep my children private. I keep my, my, my marriage private. I mean, our intimacy is private. Now, we want to live a, a public marriage that people can model, and I want, to, I want you to see public parenting or uh, a demonstration of parenting, but I, I try to insulate my family from everything, but at the same time, what we do is clean and holy, and I don't have a problem if you want to investigate it. It is the minister's job to commend their total life to the conscience of all men. And that means everything we do, from the way we dress in public, from the way we handle ourselves on vacation, to how we handle money, even to the kind of vehicle we drive, it's got to be something that commends itself to the conscience of all men. There are certain vehicles I will never drive because it would bring too much scrutiny and, and disdain to the gospel ministry. There's a certain size house I will never move into because it's not necessary. And I personally am of the conviction, my personal conviction, if you have to have a big house to feel important, you need a better walk with Jesus Christ. And if you think a big house is a sign of God's endorsement, you need to get a better walk with Jesus Christ. I'm not against big houses, and I've had friends that had them and grew up playing in massive mansions, but it's just a house. Uh, If that's what your ego's tied to, you should probably get with Jesus Christ and, and chill out a little bit. The minister's job is to commend their total life to the conscience of all men. And this includes the area of private and ministerial finances. This whole lesson, these nine lessons have been about tithes and offerings and about how we use money, how God uses money. It's been about uh, how we tithe and honor God with the giving. But we want to talk about now the minister's responsibility once he has that money. Because the, in the Old Testament, the high priest, he received the money and it was his job to delegate it and have a budget and use it appropriately. And if it was ever mishandled, he was judged for it. In the New Testament, the minister receives the money, but he has to diversify it, budget it, to accomplish lots of different things in the ministry. He has to pay himself a salary. He has to care for his own family, but he has to make sure the ministry continues to run as well. We have to make sure that we are able to commend the financial setting and the financial culture, the financial reality of a ministry publicly. I don't trust ministries that won't disclose their financials. I understand there's certain things you might keep private because it's maybe not the government's business, but I'm under the firm conviction that if you support this church in ministry, you can have a right to know what we spend the money on. I don't have a problem with that. What what am I hiding? Look at our next verse, 2 Corinthians 6. Giving no offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. How many ministries and how much is the Lord Jesus Christ discredited by his chief officers? But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. There's that word commend again. It becomes the minister's job to commend ourselves through our lifestyle. Not just cheap talk, but by the way we live. It is a commendation. People can look at how we live and they say, I don't know about some things, but that's a clean man. That's a holy man. I may not agree with his doctrine. I may not agree with how he preaches, but I tell you this, he's clean. Commending ourselves as the servants of God in much endurance in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word, in the the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. You see, this is all the things Paul says defines a powerful public ministry. And these are evidences and signs that God is using somebody. 
I'm thankful I look at this that I'm not always having to be hungry. I'm not always having to have sleepless nights. Thank God I don't have to be beat or in prison. But I look at this list. I see nowhere about prosperity being something you use to commend yourself. We've come out of the prosperity gospel revival, which I'm glad is dying because it got so perverse so quickly. So many preachers would look at their kingdom, not God's kingdom, but their kingdom, and they would say, look, God is endorsing me. And look, God is commending me. Paul never used money as a commendation tool. Paul said, look at our lives, look at our endurance, our afflictions, our hardships, our distresses, our beatings, tumults, labors, our kindness, our genuine love, the word that we're preaching, the power of God, the weapons of righteousness, that's what we use to commend ourselves. The minister's lifestyle will either promote the ministry or discredit it. And I honestly think, who needs the devil when you got dirty preachers? Lord Jesus, my pastor, Dr. Barclay says, Lord, I feel sorry for you. You've got some weird people. And that's, that's the case. The Lord Jesus, how does he get anything done with the kind of preachers we're running the ministry with today? Too many ministers have lived discrediting lives and led discrediting ministries. And we don't need to have that. We need to change that. That's why we've written this lesson. This passage gives a list of what real ministers should brag about. Endurance, afflictions, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labors, etc. Wealth and riches are not included as something worthy of commendation. Uh, only, that's, as one man said, when the Greeks got the gospel, they made a philosophy out of it. When the Romans got the gospel, they made a government out of it, governments out of it. When the Europeans got the gospel, they made a culture out of it. And when America got the gospel, we made an industry out of it. Every culture takes the gospel and perverts it to its own flavor. And the prosperity gospel arose out of America when it was all about profit margins and gains and wealth and middle-class suburban America. Lord, help us. Our next section looks at the first greedy ministers. And this, we have a perfect example right in the very beginning of the Mosaic Covenant when the priesthood is established, tithes and offerings are being established. We get to see... Two preachers pervert the offering for selfish gain, and we get to see the heart of God immediately manifested concerning this. Uh, here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we read, Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial, or wicked. One translation says worthless. I kind of like that one. The sons of Eli, that's the preacher. Eli's the preacher. He's the priest. The sons of Eli were worthless. May that never be a preacher's kid. May we too often, we still have the preacher kid mentality or the, the stereotype. That began back here in the priesthood. Too often ministers raise the worst kids because they're focused on succeeding as a preacher and they fail as a father. They knew not the Lord. This is what makes you worthless. You don't know the Lord. How can a priest who stands in front of God every day not teach his kids to know the Lord? And apparently there are adults here. So he's royally failed as a father. One translation says, and they didn't know the priest's custom either. They didn't just know the Lord. They didn't know how things worked in the priesthood. But we'll read on in the King James. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in the boiling or seething with the flesh hook of three teeth in his hand. And he struck it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. And all that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. And this was established in the law, that the priest lived by the altar, and this is what would have fed him and his family. So they did in Shiloh unto all the, uh, Israelites, uh, unto all the Israelites that came there. Also, before they burned the fat, 
the priest's servants came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have boiled flesh of thee but raw. And if any man said unto him, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, but then take as much as thy soul desires, then he would say, Nay, uh, but thou shalt give it me now. And if not, I will take it by force. And uh, he says, and therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. So these were young men, uh, maybe 20, maybe 25, young preachers, young whippersnappers. Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men aboard the offering of the Lord. I want you to see something there, just to kind of give you an exegesis on this passage. These priests were, were taking advantage of their authority and they were, uh, they were basically making the offering unholy. They were ruining people's opportunity to honor the Lord and worship the Lord. They didn't want boiled meat. The, the custom was to take meat after it had been boiled, after it had been presented to the Lord. They were saying, give it to me raw so that way I can cook it the way I want to because I, I really don't like boiled meat. I want to roast it or fry it any way I want to. And the covenant called for burning the fat first and after it was burned and I was done worshiping the Lord, then the priest could have what was left over, what God did not take, what God did not consume. And these young priests, they, they overlooked all the honor. They overlooked all the worship. They didn't care about the people's relationship with God. They didn't care about the people being blessed by God. They just wanted what they wanted when they wanted it. They were obeying the whims of their stomach, the God of their belly. And they were totally undermining the laws that God had established for this thing. And in doing so, they caused the people to abhor or hate the offering of the Lord. I feel that way a lot of time watching offerings on Christian television. I watch the way those hirelings do it, and it makes me hate the offering of the Lord. And there's been many times I've said in services, I'm just not giving in this offering uh, because I hate the compulsion being pressured here. I hate the way it's being done. This is not holy. This is going to benefit somebody who doesn't care about me. I have felt that way many times, and we see the very first example of it here in the early priesthood. Phineas and Hophni, which was the name of these two sons, they had no business being in the ministry. They knew not the Lord. That would account for a lot of people on Christian television. They know not the Lord, and they have no business being on television. Though the Levites were to live by the altar, there were still rules they had to abide by. These men disregarded God's laws concerning tithes and offerings out of greed, and they took what they wanted from these offerings. Their unethical handling of the offerings caused God's people to despise giving to the Lord. And that's what God hated the most. You're making my people hate the very act that will bless them. And it was all the preacher's fault. The preachers were to blame for making people hate the service of God. And so what happened? God cursed Eli. He said, you haven't fixed your sons in the faith. You haven't fixed your natural sons. You've honored them more than you've honored me. Therefore, I despise you and I despise your sons and you're all dying. And they all died. Phineas and Hophni, they ultimately died for their sin. I call them fake preachers. Too many folks on Christian television are fake preachers. Too many folks in the ministry are fake. So that sets the standard. We see from the very beginning, God hates fake preachers. And he hates it when we pervert the offering for selfish gain. Let's look at this next section. Preachers must be tithers and givers. And what I'm really looking at is just some Old Testament things here. These are the two major principles I'm seeing in the Old Testament that we are building upon for the New Testament minister. Preachers must live, uh, lead by example. Amen to that. It's been said that our lifestyles often preach louder than our sermons do. 
And I would add this for any preacher listening to this in the future, that it's not so much what you preach that will feed the sheep, but how you live. If your people are dirty and corrupt and they can't seem to catch what you're preaching, you may need to judge your private life. Maybe your dirt and your corruption is, is ministering into them. You can, a fountain can put forth water, but if the source of the fountain is corrupt, even though water's going forth, and technically it's water, there's a corruption in there that'll, that'll make people sick. We must minister this gospel out of a pure heart and a pure lifestyle. Paul said, uh, we long not, not just to minister the word, but even our own soul unto you. He said that to the Corinthians. And what preachers don't get is that when we stand up here and preach, we are ministering our soul as well as the gospel. Part of our personality, part of our private life is coming off in our preaching and being sown into the people's hearts. And if you're a dirty preacher, you're ruining people every time you open your mouth. Maybe not overnight, but little by little, flicks and flakes of your perversion, of the rot and the rust in your pipes is going into the people's lives. Often, our lifestyle preaches louder than our sermons do. Preachers can't just be supported by the gospel. They must also support the gospel. It's, it's totally perverse if I just think I'm supposed to be taken care of and then not do my part to turn around and take care of the gospel as well. Numbers chapter 18, 25 through 28, the Lord spake unto Moses saying, thus speak unto the Levites. That's the whole ministry in the day of ancient Israel. This was the one tribe out of the 12 that did not get territorial inheritance. Their inheritance was ministry. Whether it was the Levites that were the high priests or the Kohathites who cared for the ministry of the tabernacle or the other Levites who kind of fed the ministry. There's a massive chain of command from the high priest all the way down to the priests, to the musicians, to the singers, uh, to the temple workers and the tabernacle workers, all the way down to those that did everything that fed into the temple. Thus speaking to the Levites, and the Levites, by the way, they were supported by the nation's tithe. So you had 11 tribes tithing, and their tithe supported the 12th tribe that was focused on the ministry. Say unto the Levites, when you take of the children of Israel the tithes which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall offer up a heave offering of it for the Lord. Heave offering just means a free will offering. Even a tenth part of the tithe. So that means right there, even though the Levites lived off of the tithe, they were to take a tithe of the tithe. And this, your heath offering, shall be reckoned unto you as though it were the corn of the threshing floor and the fullness of the winepress. Thus you shall also offer a heave offering unto the Lord of all your tithes, which you receive of the children of Israel, and you shall give thereof the Lord's heave offering to Aaron the priest, or we should say the high priest. So even the ministers were tithing to the high priest. The Levites tithed upward. In the New Testament, local churches lead by their, led by their pastors talking about the book of Acts and the book of Philippians specifically. In the New Testament, local churches led by their pastors sent offerings to Paul time and again. In fact, Epaphroditus was more than likely the pastor of the Philippian church. He's called an apostle in the original Greek, a messenger, but it's the, word, the Greek word apostolos. And so he received this offering and delivered it to Paul. So what you see there is you see an apostle, a pastor, Epaphroditus, Philippians, he helped collect the offering of the Philippian church and he went and delivered it to Paul so Paul could have his needs supplied. You see even in the New Testament, ministers giving tithes and offerings to support the gospel. Paul was a giver according to Acts 24, 17. He gave alms and even supported the nation of Israel through his giving because he wanted them to be born again. 
mature gospel leaders demonstrate tithing and giving by their lifestyle. It is very perhaps hypocritical, perhaps shallow for the preacher to always preach tithes and offerings and never demonstrate to the people he actually does it himself. That's that hypocritical thing that we hate. Do as I say, not as I do. I'm sorry, preacher. We have to require the people to do as we do, not just do as we say. Uh, the number one, actually, what's Peter say? Was that James? The husbandman must be first partaker of his own fruit. You have to practice what you preach, preacher. So I've got a section here I call Rules for Ministerial Money Ethics. So here's some things from the New Testament. And actually, most of these are laid out in the book of Corinthians. Corinthians was a generous church. They just didn't know how to take care of their preacher. We're going to see what Paul had to say, but here are some very just general rules for ministerial money ethics. And if a church or ministry will operate by these concepts and precepts, their ministry will be blessed, it'll be above board, and uh, you won't cause anybody to trip or stumble, and they won't be able to pay, point your, their finger at your ministry and say, you're a money-grubbing preacher. Rule number one, every ministry, every pastor, every Christian, every business should have a budget. Budgets are so critical. Every church and ministry should have a budget. If you don't have a budget, how do you know what you need? If you don't know what you need, how can you let your requests be made known unto God? When you have a budget, you know what to take to the Lord in prayer over and over again. If you take it to the Lord in prayer, you'll never manipulate the people. If you don't know what you need, you won't take it to the Lord. If you don't take it to the Lord, you'll always have a need and you'll always look to squeeze it out of the people. And that's called wicked. God promises to supply our needs. A budget will help keep track of those needs. So how can I take it to the Lord and say, Lord, I have need of this if I don't know what I have need of? And a budget is a prophetic tool. It will prophesy to you every time you look at it. It'll say, thus saith the budget. You are in the red. You need to believe God for more money and ask him to supply your needs. Or thus saith the budget. You're now in the black. You have room to expand. You have room to do this. You have room to do that. Look at Genesis 41, 34. This is the prophetic word of Joseph, the dream interpreter, or as the Bible says, the dreamer, the dreamer cometh. This was the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. Joseph said, let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land and take up the fifth part of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. Now, if you don't stop and read that, you totally miss what he's saying there. He's saying this dream that you've had of seven fat cows and seven skinny cows, it refers to seven years of prosperity and seven years of famine. And he says, this is what you do. You save 20% every year for seven years. Now, the only way you can save 20% is if you have a budget and you can set aside a fifth part. That's a budget. The Joseph's prophetic dream interpretation called for Egypt to have an annual budget that allowed for a 20% savings each year for seven prosperous years. Think about that. The prophetic will of God spoken to the national leader was a 20% budget of savings. I wonder how many of you have a 20% savings plan. Probably hardly anybody in this church saves 20%. One of the things my wife and I try to do with any money above and beyond our regular income, we save 10%, or actually we tie 10%, save 10%, invest 10%. So between saving and investing 10%, we are saving 
That's just what we do personally. The Lord dealt with us to do it. And we sat down with our pastor a couple months after the Lord spoke to me about it. He said the exact same thing. He said he did the same thing. He tithed 20, or 10%, saved 10%, and invested 10%. I thought, isn't that something? The Lord spoke to me, and my pastor does the same thing. So Joseph's prophetic dream called for Egypt to have an annual budget that allowed for 20% savings each year for seven prosperous years. If a budget can save the known world from starvation, it can help save a ministry from financial starvation. A ministry budget can help accomplish several things. So let's look at this. A budget allows for realistic goal setting and planning. Seven, eight years ago, when we owned property, we had about, I don't know, maybe upwards of 90000 to 100000 in a savings account for our building fund. And so if we're going to build, we have to begin to plan and hire engineers. And uh, so that's what we did. We quickly burned through that money working with engineers to do a due diligence, even just some uh, value engineering to see what it was going to cost to build a 12,000 square foot building out on the property. The property was paid for. We were currently renting 12,000 square feet, so you can't diminish your size. So basically, $100,000 later, we saw that it was going to cost about three and a half to four and a half million dollars to build 12,000 square feet, which was a monthly mortgage of about 30 something thousand dollars, 30, 35,000 dollars, which at that season was our monthly budget period. And because we had a budget and we had a building budget, we could quickly see there's no way on earth we we're ever going to be able to build a brand new building because we can't afford the mortgage on it. We don't have the income. We don't have the, the people present. It just doesn't make sense. And it didn't matter how much you thought you were led by the Holy Ghost, the budget screamed at you and said, this is reality. And so that helped us. It, it allowed us to have a realistic goal setting and planning. Number two, a budget tells you how much money is coming in and going out. If you don't know how much money is coming in or going out, you're not operating in wisdom. You've got to fix that, especially as a minister. Number three, a budget tells you how much money you are saving, and every ministry should have a savings account. Every home should have a savings account. The Bible says he will bless your storehouse. A storehouse is the Old Testament equivalent of a savings account. How can you bless something you don't have? Number four, a budget tells you how much you can and cannot afford to spend. Some folks, they plug their, uh, their ears with their fingers they, and they cl close their eyes and they say, I don't want to know, I don't want to know, I'm just going to spend, 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 and they bankrupt their church or ministry. A budget will make you a good steward, and Jesus Christ had many parables about stewards. A budget will predict how long it will take you to accomplish a financial goal. Uh, we know how much we have left on our church mortgage and how much we pay each month, and so that allows us to begin to push towards paying it down quicker. It lets you know what your long-term vision needs to be or how to adjust it to speed it up and expedite it. A budget will keep you disciplined when you are tempted to squander money. Anybody that lives in perpetual credit card debt does not have a budget. A budget will give you something to base your prayer requests upon. Now we're getting spiritual. And a budget will give you a strong foundation to build your ministry upon. This ministry, I'm ashamed to admit it publicly, but it's a learning lesson. This ministry did not have a budget until I took over the church and was probably pastoring a year or two. And we began to realize, wait, wait we don't have a budget? And this church consequently went nowhere for 25 years. And within the last eight years, since we've had a budget, we've gone like gangbusters, bought all these buildings, 18,000 square feet and half an acre of parking, 
biggest property owner on the west side, private property owner anyway, own more parking than anybody except the city and uh, take as many mission trips as we need to take and buy all the equipment. Because a budget is a powerful tool and it allows you to be forthright, upfront, and transparent with what you're doing with your money. You can account, if somebody gets nosy and sassy, you can account for it with a spreadsheet where the money went. And you can pacify judgment. Point number two, and the, the second rule for money, uh, money and ministerial ethics is preach the gospel for free. Think about that. The gospel should preach for free, but it isn't free. Somebody's financing it behind the scenes, but it shouldn't be the people you're preaching to in that moment if they're in poverty or dire need or don't know God. There's nothing wrong with telling the people what it will cost to fulfill a gospel assignment. For example, travel costs, building costs, payroll, hotel rooms, etc. And you can only know these things if you have a budget. So let's take, for example, you're a traveling minister. If God has called, let's say God's called me to go to Iowa or God's called me to go to Zimbabwe like we leave for today. When we go overseas on mission trips, we don't charge anything. And we honestly don't let those costs be made known at all. We feel it's our obligation to finance the missions from this side and to go over there. Now, sometimes they'll take up an offering, but quite honestly, when you receive an offering in the third world, it doesn't really cover much stateside. In fact, actually, on this trip right now, I, we, in, our, in our church safe, I have money from different African nations that was given to me as offerings. I don't convert it. I keep it in that currency, whether it's Pula or Ran or Nera or whatever it may be, euros, pounds sterling. And I keep it in the safe because I'm going to take that money and go back to those countries and use it to finance the next mission trip. It won't go far here, but it'll go much further in those countries. Plus, it's holy. It's an offering. It's a tithe. There's nothing wrong with telling people what it'll cost, but if God's told me to go to Zimbabwe, the money's got to come from somewhere. And I'm not going to charge Zimbabwe to come preach to them. And I'm not going to charge South Africa to come preach to them. And I'm not going to charge Ireland to come preach to them. If God's told me to go, the money will come from somewhere. Uh, I really stand against a lot of these celebrity preachers that have like a $30,000, $50,000 down payment for them to even show up at your church. And then they charge there and then they take up an offering. It's disgusting. And may their money perish with them because it's a perversion. It's greed. You can't even be a bishop or a deacon in the local church if you're given over to filthy lucre. And most of these guys wear a cologne called filthy liqueur. Bunch of pervs is what they are. If God has called you to do something, God is obligated to supply the need. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.18. What is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ, I may make it without charge that I abuse not my power in the gospel. Notice Paul said, when I preach the gospel, I may preach the gospel without charge. Paul said, I'm not going to charge for the gospel. The biggest preacher in the land right now, he has these night of hopes and he charges entry fees. That violates this scripture. I would never go to one because he's charging people to come in. Now he says he's getting folks saved and I hope to God he is, but he needs to read his Bible. He's not known for being a doctrine guy. He's not known for being a Bible guy. He's known for being a smiling and encouraging guy, but you can get that with Dr. Phil or Oprah or any of those you know, seeker-friendly uh, motivational speakers. Paul said, here's my reward. Every time I preach the gospel free of charge, I have a reward. I would rather have a spiritual reward than a natural one. There's a big difference between demanding a guaranteed amount and asking to receive an offering. There's nothing wrong with preaching the gospel and receiving an offering. 
There's a difference though when you demand money up front. That will always destroy a minister's credibility. Receiving an offering is biblical and it requires faith in God. If it costs me five or $6,000 to go to South Africa and they receive a $500 offering for me, I gotta believe God to make up the difference. Demanding an upfront booking rate or an appearance fee, which is what a lot of your famous preachers do. There's some preachers we couldn't have here unless we guaranteed them a certain offering amount or paid it up front. There's some preachers that won't go to churches unless they're over 5,000 people. That is as carnal and disgusting as I could ever put a label to. Demanding an upfront booking rate or appearance fee is secular, base, and adopted from the entertainment industry. It's called an appearance fee. It's what celebrities demand to go show up at a party or to show up at a book signing or to get an autograph. It's disgusting. It's sensual. It's pagan. It's not the book of Acts. It's not the epistles. Paul stopped and preached to 12 people and it was recorded in the book of Acts. I'm convinced most of these meetings that the mega preachers are having now will never be recorded in heaven. But Paul's meeting with 12 disciples at Ephesus is recorded forever in Acts 19. Philip's meeting with one Ethiopian eunuch is recorded forever in the book of Acts. Jesus Christ's meeting with a Samaritan woman at the well, one woman, is recorded forever in the book of John. Some of these mega meetings, I think they'll have no record ever because they weren't God. They were all about ego. Point number three, do not manipulate the offering. We're talking about money ethics. Don't manipulate the offering. Offering time is when most celebrity preachers turn half demon. And I'm convinced there's a familiar spirit that operates in most of those rich guys. The celebrity preacher has perfected the gimmick offering, twisting and turning the scriptures to their pleasure and prosperity. The only time they seem to quote scriptures is when it's offering time. Avarice and greed have their greatest opportunity to flare up during the offering. 2 Corinthians 8, 12, Paul teaching the Corinthians how to give an offering. He says, for if there be a first a willing mind and heart, it is accepted according to that a man has and not according to that he hath not. So look, Paul's telling the Corinthians, when you give, let it be of a willing heart and a willing mind. And it's not based on what you don't have. It's based on what you do have to give. I went one time when I worked the phone lines at a major international ministry, uh, the hireling heretic, demon-possessed preacher who was taking up the uh, fund offering, he said, just like David took Goliath's sword and cut his head off, if you're fighting the Goliath of debt, you need to take debt's sword and cut debt's head off. He said, so that means get your credit card out. That's the, that's the sword of Goliath. Your credit card is debt's sword. So what you need to do is turn debt on itself, go further into debt, sow a love seed gift offering and get yourself out of debt by going deeper into debt is basically what he said. And I looked at that television and I just thought, you're going to hell. You're gonna burn in hell because this is all about money to you. Ugh, just disgust me. Paul says here, it's not what you don't have. God doesn't want you to go into debt. It's about what you do have. God wants his people to give willingly and joyfully. He also wants his people to give what they have, not what they don't have. So never let anybody talk you into debt for an offering because you go home condemned and they go home rich. Ugh. Only the word of God or the spirit of God has the right to tell people what to give. So I can preach and command a tithe because the Bible says that. And I can preach and command an offering. 
because the Bible says that. But what the tithe is, is 10%. And I don't know what you make, so I can't tell you what to give other than it's 10%. And the offering is anything above 10%, so it could be 0.01% above the tithe. But that's between you and God. I don't have a right to tell you specifically what to give. And it's total heresy to come up with some fake gimmick based on a scripture verse that has a high number, like this is the Psalm 119.50 offering. That means if you'll give $119.50, it's guaranteed to work for you. That's a snake oil salesman. Curse him and go buy your kids some ice cream and be blessed. Don't give that man any money. He's a pervert. May he go broke. May he be homeless till he learn how to humble himself and love God's people. Man, the church has gone so rogue and perverse. I don't know how God gets anything done. Only the word of God or the spirit of God has the right to tell people what to give. Second Corinthians 9, 7, New American Standard. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. You decide in your heart what to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If the believer is commanded to, give, to, to never give under compulsion, and that's what I teach all of you, never give under compulsion, never give under pressure. Why do some preachers think they have God's permission to compel, extort, and demand? These guys don't know the Bible. If they don't know the Bible, you have no business listening to them. They don't have any business being on the air. They need to go away. So don't manipulate the offering, preacher. Just preach the word. Say the Bible says we should tithe. The Bible says we should give offerings. If you've been blessed, ask the Lord what he wants you to give, and he'll bless you. It's between you and God. I have nothing to do with it. And let the people have the opportunity to step out in faith. Point number four, seek the people's good. I think if every preacher really loved people and really loved the people, none of this would be a problem. But here's the truth behind it, church. Many preachers don't actually love people. Many preachers, they're just in the business of ministry. They're just in it for the money. They're in it for the notoriety, the name recognition. They really don't care about God's people. Seek the people's good, not their goods. Dr. Barclay says a good pastor is interested in your outcome not just your income. Now, we're interested in your income because we want your income to increase, but really what we want is a spiritual outcome to improve. We want, we want to know how your life's going to turn out. We don't care about anything else. We, we want you to be blessed. There, there is a part of your income we're concerned about. We want you to tithe on it so you be blessed so your income can expand, but we're supposed to be more concerned with your outcome than anything else. Seek the people's good, not just their goods. Preachers manipulate the offering when they've gotten their eyes off of God and fail to see the people as precious. Think about that. When they get their eyes off of God and they, they'll fail to see the people as precious. A minister's motive should be to honor God by blessing and helping his people. If I've blessed you and helped you, I've honored God. And if I want to honor God, I've got to take care of his people. Too often ministers are led by the presumed offering they think they'll receive. I've seen Baptist preachers feel led of God to take another church that happens to have a much bigger budget for the payroll. It's, it's not just seeker-friendly guys. It's not just word of fake guys. It's not just crazy-matic prosperity guys. It's denominational guys too. I've seen preachers leave churches they thought were too small for them to take a mega church within the denomination because you know the payroll's bigger. That's a hireling. That is a teetotal hireling. A hireling is someone who just works for the hire. 2 Corinthians 12, 14, Behold, the third time I'm ready to come unto you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Think about that in the natural. The parents leave an inheritance to the children. The children don't stockpile for the parents. Paul is, 
he's using that natural allegory to explain to him or to this church why he's doing what he's doing. He said, I'm ready to come to you. I don't want to be a burden to you because I don't seek yours. I seek you. Paul wanted to visit the Corinthian church, not for an offering, but to check on the people and see how they were doing. I do Listen to me, church. I don't travel the world for an offering because I've only probably within the last two or three years started receiving offerings on the mission field because I know it will bless them. I take it back. I received an offering in 2009 from Pastor Kuoko, but I couldn't take it home. I prayed over it. I received it. I actually laid on it so I could say I've received it into my bosom, and then I left it with him. Pastor Kuoko said it was the biggest offering the church had ever received. And we left it with him. And I gave it, I sold it back to Pastor Kuoko so he could continue on with his building project. He was supposed to build a fence with it. I've never been back to check on it. But I know if he said that's what he was going to do, that was, that's what he was going to do. But it wasn't only until about two or three years ago that I began to actually keep the offerings that were received from me overseas. And I did it when my heart finally got over this hump that said it blesses the people to sow to the preacher. And I finally believe that strong enough according to the Bible to do it. But again, the offerings we receive overseas, they, they don't even cover the cost of the trip we're taking. Not the hotel rooms, definitely not the airfare, not the cost of equipment. But it blesses the people. Dr. Summerall told a pr- preacher friend of mine, a much older friend of mine, he said, when you go overseas, you take nothing but the gospel and a chicken bucket. And with the Bible, you preach the gospel, and with that chicken bucket, you receive an offering, and if they'll sow to the man of God, they'll be blessed. It'll get them out of poverty. And he knew very well that the chicken bucket in the bush of Africa or the bush of the Amazon was not going to hardly cover any of the expenses of the missionary, but it kick-started the, the, the provision of God and the supply of God for those preachers, excuse me, for the people. Paul wanted to check on the people. He didn't take a mission trip for the money. One famous preacher said, I, this is disgusting, I have to keep my preaching schedule filled in order to afford my lifestyle. Now, I personally know that preacher, and I like the guy, but I have a lower estimation of him now. He said, he said I have to keep my preaching schedule super maxed out, super filled, just to afford my lifestyle. He has two houses, and he buys very nice stuff. He wasn't necessarily preaching to help build the kingdom. He was preaching to help maintain his own kingdom. And I don't think he's going to last much longer. John 10, 13, the hireling fleeth because he is a hireling and cares not for the sheep. Now, the hireling, we think you know, it's, a, it's a pejorative, it's a negative term, but the hireling just refers to the guy that does it for the money. He does it for the hire, for the wage, the wage earner. The wage earner, the guy who's in the pulpit for the money, he doesn't care for the sheep. He leaves when things get tough. That's not what God's looking for. We're not to be in this for the money's sake. We're to be in it for the sheep. Jesus said, I am the righteous shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I don't lay down my life for a paycheck. I lay down my life for the sheep. Any preacher in it for the money is a hireling. He or she will abandon the church when the going gets tough because they just don't care for the sheep. A real minister lays down his life for the sheep regardless of the paycheck. That sacrificed life includes paying for ministry out of your own pocket. And just buying things for, you, for the ministry. And so last section here, our fifth point, I believe, commend yourself to every man's conscience. These are things we can do to have high ministerial money ethics, to be so far above board, even the IRS can't find anything wrong with us, much less your enemy.
which may be the IRS in the next few years. Cultures, social norms, and mores change, but the gospel minister must always be above board with the ministry's money or with the ministry money. And by that, I mean I could probably live in Atlanta and drive a BMW or a Lexus and nobody think anything about it. But if I were to live here, uh, I would probably be talked about and be called all sorts of things, which it not worth it to me. If I lived in Africa, I guarantee you I would have a Toyota Land Cruiser or a Range Rover because that's what everybody has and you need that. If I were to have a vehicle that expensive here, it would look odd. And so I just don't want one. That's what I mean by culture and social norms and mores. Uh, overseas, I could live differently than I, I choose to live here. So much of what I do as a minister with money has a lot to do with the, the image it sets and the problems it would or won't create. So much of what I do, I do by choice so that the gospel is not hindered. Just like Paul said, if meat causes my brother to offend, I choose never to touch meat. I wish more American preachers would catch that when it comes to their money. One very, very famous preacher went and built like a 10 or 20,000 square foot house. And when he was building it, Dr. Barclay told him, he said, sir, you can build that house if you want. I know you'll pay for it in cash and you'll pay taxes on it, but you're gonna bring a lot of heat to the body of Christ and specifically us faith preachers. And he said, the media is gonna fly over that house with helicopters. And that preacher said, I don't care. I wanna do it. It's prosperity and I wanna show off what God's done for me. And sure enough, he started building that house. The media went wild with it criticized the word of faith people, criticized the prosperity message, and helicopters flew over that man's house, and he did it almost in defiance to wisdom. And, and what do you have? You got two people, kids are grown, you're living in a 10 or 20,000 square foot house. Why? Is it worth the disdain and the discreditation you've brought to the name of Jesus Christ? Why can't they be like Paul who said, if it causes my brother to offend, I will, I will, will retire the right that I have to live in the mansion. We got mansions in heaven. Why are we worried about building them here? You're just going to die and somebody's going to take over it or sell it or auction it. It's going to be a mausoleum to dishonor. People want to trust the minister they sow towards. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, we're repeating this verse again. Seeing we have this ministry, we have received it. God's had mercy on us as preachers and given us a ministry. We faint not. But what we do is we renounce the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, not handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We have to make sure as ministers, we don't take every right given unto us. Paul said, all things are lawful unto me, but all things edify not. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. We have a lot of freedoms in the New Testament. doesn't mean we should take all of them. We have to make sure we're living above board. I keep a shaved head. If I were to go to a country where a shaved head was offensive, I'd grow my hair out. I've got this beard now. If I went to a country where a beard was offensive, I'd shave my beard. It's all for the furtherance of the gospel. I cannot stand Christians that defend their rights when it's uh, hurting somebody else's faith. Paul said in Romans 14:1, those that are weak in the faith receive, but not to doubtful disputations. We're to receive those that are weak, not steamroll over them because they're offended by a beard or a shaved head. Some of you, this, this hippie shirt may offend you, but this is my Zimbabwe shirt. If it offends you, I'll change shirts or teach you how to grow up. I don't know, but I'll accommodate your weakness because I love you. Here are some natural ways the gospel minister can offend themselves and their ministry in the realm of finances. So here are some final steps, almost done here. Number one, have a ministry budget that includes your salary. Just by having a budget, people will trust you more. 
They want to know what the budget is. There's one church I give money to about once or twice a year. When they send out their annual giving letter, they tell you what, what they received in tithes and offerings that year. And, and that makes me trust them more. That says, we're open. And they give it to the penny. This year, we rejoice. We received this much money. And we thank you for you being a part of that. And this is what you gave. And no goods or services were exchanged for the giving of this amount. Number two, have a compensation committee that sets your salary. When the preacher sets its own salary, that, that causes questions and red flags. You should have a compensation committee that knows what you're worth and what the value of a preacher of a church your size or ministry your size is worth and let them set it. That way you can say, I don't set my own salary. A committee does. And they know our budget and they know what we want to do, what we're able to do, and they set my salary. Number three, make your ministry financial statements available to those who support you. Now, if you don't support this church, it's none of your business. But if you give tithes and offerings here, I don't have a problem. In fact, we do, until we remodel, we posted our annual, our quarterly budget amounts. So you could see salaries are pulled out and they're chunked as a massive chunk. And then you see where all the other money goes. So you know what we're doing with it. And I can guarantee you the money either makes disciples or preaches to the lost. That's what we do with money. It buys equipment that does that. It pays salaries for people that do that. So make your, finan- your ministry financial statements available to those who support you. Number four, don't live ostentatiously or lavishly. Live soberly in moder- and in moderation. The Bible teaches sobriety and in moderation. I, I honestly, I can't even stomach ostentatious and lavish preachers. If they're rolling up in a $100,000 car, I don't want to have anything to do with them. If they're if they demanding living in a 10,000 square foot house, I really don't think there's anything from them I want to receive because I don't want to catch that. I got too much gospel to preach in third world countries. They don't, I, don't, I, can't, I don't have room for that. I, I think you've shot yourself in the foot and you should repent of your pride. You're, Amer- you're more American than you are kingdom. Be open with your costs and operating expenses. Be, let people know what it's going to cost. Let people know what you're doing financially. They'll trust you more. And if they trust you more, they'll sow more towards you. And number six, teach and preach more than just money. My goodness, some of these word of fake guys, all they talk about is money because they've grown their ministry so big they can't afford to stay current with God anymore. Money is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a gift of the Spirit, and it's not a principal doctrine of Christ. So when you exhaust those, as the 18 plus 6, those 24 doctrines, then maybe you can go teach on money for a little bit. But teach and preach more than just money. Let your money be clean, and God Almighty will promote you and your ministry. Amen. I hope you've been blessed. I think I've gone over a little bit, but we're teaching this from the, the digital copy. I love you guys. Continue to pray for us. Let me pray for you and bless you. Lord, bless those that listen and watch these videos. Bless those that listen in the future. Father, bless my wife as she ministers the word this morning. I thank you for blessing this church. May your word change us and may we all live clean and responsibly with your money. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys.